Good morning, Cornerstone Church. When I was a child, <clears throat> when I was a child, I thought like a child. I spoke like a child, and I understood like a child. And that's why when I was a child, I love to eat Franco-American SpaghettiOs and meatballs. Anybody remember that? Franco-American spaghetti and meatballs. I adored Franco-American spaghetti and meat. I adored all the Franco-American's products. But especially the spaghetti and meatballs. I thought at six or seven years old that I had found the holy grail of Italian food. When I'd come home from school and mom was making Franco-American spaghetti, I would sing the commercial. I was nostalgic. Who, what child wouldn't love a dab of tomato paste saturated in fructose corn syrup with a meatball in it? Who wouldn't love that? What child would not adore that? A meatball. Then I got older, maybe 11 or 12 years old. And my taste began to change. And I began to like my mother's spaghetti, her rendition of spaghetti. She didn't do the meatballs though. Mom, mom did the ground meat, the meat sauce, the ground chuck mixed in and she would, she would let it just simmer in the skillet all together. Oh man, it would smell so good. The, 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 the thick and crisp green pepper, the, the crisp onions. I can smell it, I can even taste it. And it wouldn't be complete without some Lori's seasoning salt. That was her favorite. And I knew then I had discovered the best Italian food there could possibly be in the world. When I would come here from school and mom was making spaghetti man with those ground, that ground chuck and that sweet smelling pasta sauce, a little bit of sugar, a dab of salt, it was just Perfect. I knew it would never get any better than that. I was down in Monterey, California in the military, and I had just left an event, and I was hungry. And I wanted some Italian food. And so I'm driving around Monterey trying to find some Italian restaurant, and I come across the restaurant on a, cor on a corner with one of those really cool Italian names trying to trick me into thinking that they're the real deal. But I know the real deal is in Chicago at my mother's house, so you're not fooling me. I go inside and the waiter is standing there waiting for me with a nice white napkin, long napkin over his arm and he introduces himself and he gives me a tie because I'm not dressed for this kind of atmosphere. I didn't know that, I just want some spaghetti and meat sauce. That's all I want. He gave me a tie, I put on the tie and I'm walking through and he's escorting me to my seat and everybody in there seems so high class, so up above it all. And in my mind, I'm not self-conscious at all. I'm actually thinking, poor people. You all actually think you're having Italian cuisine. If I took you to my mother's house, oh my, you wouldn't come to this restaurant ever again because I know what good Italian food consists of. Crispy green peppers, crispy onions, 
And so I sat down and I smiled to myself as I was looking over this menu with no prices on any of the items, you know, when you know you're about to pay too much money. My dad used to say when there are no prices on the menu, that means if, you, if you're concerned about how much it costs, maybe you don't need to be there because it's going to be expensive. So now I'm in an expensive restaurant about to have some, what I'm sure is going to be some cheap Italian pasta that I'm going to overpay for, all because my mother won't come and visit me. Monterey. The chef comes out to my table. He's rolling my food on a cart like it's dead, and I'm laughing. What are you carrying a cart for, bro? It's just spaghetti and meat. So he comes to my table, and he places the plate in front of me, and it's a big, beautiful plate, white plate. But the meal inside the plate is only like that big on this huge plate. These three meatballs with this pile of pasta and the spaghetti isn't immersed in the sauce. The sauce is just on top of the pasta and I'm thinking, oh my God. I made a mistake, this was a bad choice. And so he says, would you like some Parmesan? Yeah, sure, give me some Parmesan. And he pulls out some fresh Parmesan and he begins to grate and I'm looking at the Parmesan cheese and thinking, at my house, buddy, we had the nice craft Parmesan cheese. <laughs> you don't know what you're doing, and this restaurant needs to shut down today because you have no idea how to do Italian food. Have you ever, have you ever ate some food that, that, that tastes so good that it felt like a spiritual experience? I grabbed my spoon and my fork and I twisted up some of that spaghetti on my, on my fork and I cut off a little piece of that meatball and dipped it in the sauce that's sitting on top of all this stuff. And when I put it in my mouth, I wanted to just repent. <laughs> I could taste so many different flavors. It was, it blew my mind. I'm sitting there trying to figure, how am I gonna break this news to my mother? that she does not know how to make Italian food. How am I going to tell her this bad? I'm sitting there and this food is in my mouth like a choir. <laughs> Singing to the, my goodness, what is this? And so I started eating slower because I really wanted to just savor every, every bite. It was so good. In Monterey, California on that day, I was introduced to the finer things. The finer things. And this is Paul's reason for pinning a letter to the saints at Philippi. Paul wants to introduce them to the finer things of the faith. The superior things of the Christian faith. Paul wants them to learn to discern the good from the better from the best. He wants to help them to acclimate themselves to the finer things, of the more nuanced, <laughs> the more granular details of the things of God. You've seen the show Hell's Kitchen. And on Hell's Kitchen, they'll blindfold the chef. 
they'll put some food before him and they'll, they'll say, we want you to identify every herb and every spice. You ever say every spice in this meal? And the person grabs the spoon. There's thyme. There's lemon. Yeah, yeah, lemon. Salt. Yeah, of course, salt. Oregano. I taste oregano. Yeah, oregano. And, and, and they have to guess by taste. Their palate has to be so sensitive to the food, so sensitive to every herb and spice that they can identify it even blindfolded. That's what Paul wants for the church at Corinth. At, I'm sorry, at Philippi. He wants them to be so familiar with the things of the spirit, so acquainted with the finer things of the kingdom of God that they will never settle for anything less. Paul's hope for them is that they will be so enlightened that they could identify the things of the spirit even in the darkness of life. He begins in verse one with his usual salutation. He says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. A bondservant is basically a slave. A bondservant is someone who works for free, receives no wages. Paul and, Paul and Timothy are committed to the faith. They're committed to stay with Christ in good days and in bad. Paul and Timothy are bound to serve with or without incentive, with or without encouragement, with or without appreciation. And they're writing to this church, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. This letter is not just written to the people in the pew. This letter is written to everyone in the church, including the overseers and the deacons. No exceptions, no exclusions. Grace to you. Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how Paul begins his letter to the Philippian church. Now, now we need to know some things about the city of Philippi. So Philippi was this city located about eight miles from the Aegean Sea. You can see it there on the map. You got the map for me? You can see it there. Philippi is right there above Neapolis. Eight miles from the coast, eight miles from the port. It is a world prominent city. It is a historic city and it is known as the great reproduction of Rome, a beautiful city with natural springs. There was plenty of gold in the land. It was a great city. It was known throughout the provinces. It was known throughout the region of Macedonia. It was a rich land, a good land. It was a Roman military outpost for a season. And many high-ranking military people retired there. It was a vacation spot. It was like Hawaii. Hans. <laughs> and by royal decree, the land of Philippi carried the legal quality of being an Italian city. Rome recognized this little town of Philippi as being entirely Roman. What does that mean? It meant that the citizens of Philippi, they paid no land tax, 
They paid no poll tax. They could file lawsuits, and most other provinces couldn't file lawsuits. They were treated like they were a part of Italy. They were recognized legally as being a Roman city. They were a privileged people, living in a privileged place. Philippi was a good city. There wasn't a lot of crime there. There wasn't a lot of crime in the general sense of what we think of crime. There wasn't much, much crime in Philippi. They had a lot of resources in Philippi. They were what we would call a civilized, a socially advanced city. The land was good, the people were pretty good. And of course the saints at Philippi were good. Paul says so in verse three. He says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you. That's amazing. That all of Paul's memories concerning the saints at Philippi, all of his memories were good memories. He had no bad experiences with the church at Philippi. The church at Philippi was a pleasure to serve, a pleasure to serve with. And Paul is thankful for them. And so he was always, he says in verse 4, he was always offering prayer with joy in my prayer for you all. Prayer with joy. And this is to their credit. It's always to a believer's credit when a pastor or an overseer thanks God for the people he serves. This is to their credit. Hebrews chapter 13 and 17 says this, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they may do this with joy and not with groaning. For this would be, I like the way he says this, for this would be unhelpful for you. Mm. The saints at Philippi were an obedient and a church that was submitted to Paul's authority. And it was helpful for them when he went before God. And as a side note, this is a lost practice in many churches today, and it's very unfortunate that saints do not see the need necessarily to submit or to obey any pastor. And then on the other hand, pastors don't take their duty seriously to report on the saints' spiritual progress to God. And so what happens too often in our churches is that God is left entirely out of the loop of what's going on in his own churches. The people will not submit and obey the pastor and the pastor is not reporting on them to God. Nobody's talking to God about much of anything and it's supposed to be his church. It is an overseer's role to pray for the people in his congregation, to mention them specifically by name, and from time to time to report to God when things are going well. Thank you for the spiritual growth I see in Albie. Thank you for the development I see in Laura. I'm very concerned about Steve Lee, Lord. You need to work on him. I just use you, I just use you just an example. You're good with that, right? You're good with that. Overseers are supposed to give a report to God 
on behalf of the people that he oversees. And this is what Paul is doing. He's giving a report. And the report he's giving is helpful for them. Because he's thanking God on their behalf. He's filled with joy to be serving these people. And so he compliments them before the throne of God. He says his report to God on their behalf has always been a good report. Because the saints at Philippi saw the wisdom and the value of obedience and submission to spiritual authority. We have lost that in the church for the most part today. Either you have a pastor who is over abusive and over controlling and abusing the saints of God. Well, you have the saints of God who are over-controlling and trying to abuse the pastor. There's always power struggles going on in the church today. We have gotten things reversed and mixed up, whereas we believe that the saints are called of God to report on the pastor. Everything is mixed up. It's all confused and out of order. Interestingly enough, nobody does that when they go to college. You don't go to college and your professor is teaching you. You say, no, no, professor, you're doing it wrong. You need to explain it like this, professor. No, if you're not going to teach it right, professor, I'm leaving because you're not teaching it the way it's supposed to be said, professor. No, no, we don't do that when we go to college. We don't do that at work. We work with CEOs and with bosses who are so mean and, and wrong and ugly, and we just submit and obey because we want money because we do not see the value of eternal things. That's what's going on. You don't understand the value of eternal things. And so you won't submit to the pastor, you won't obey the pastor, no, not. You don't even do that in karate school. If you go to a karate school and a master is standing up front, and you wanna be one of his students and you come in there and tell him, your stance is improper, uh, 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 karate master, you need to stand more like this. And when you explain you need to do like this, and you know what the master would say? Get your bag and leave. Because you didn't come to be taught. You came to dominate and to control. And the church of Jesus Christ does not need that. These people were submitted to authority. They were obedient and they realized that when someone is called as an overseer by God and anointed, this person has the ability and anointing from God to help you to grow spirit. Paul thanks God for them, he says, verse five in view of your participation in the gospel. The saints at Philippi were a participating church. They participated, they partnered with Paul in his missionary journey of spreading the gospel. They were an engaged church. They didn't sit on the sideline and judge or complain. They rolled up their sleeves and they got involved. Not like my brother, Victor. I was moving one time. I was living in Indiana, and we were moving. I called my brother and asked my brother to come and help us move. My brother gets to my house, and he's standing in the corner like this. And I'm dragging furniture around and looking at him, waiting for him to get, well, you got a stretch or something, bro? You can get together so you can help me. I'm pulling stuff and moving stuff, and he's standing, well, you got a stretch or something, bro? You can get together so you can help me. I'm pulling stuff and moving stuff, and he's standing in the corner looking at us. And I stopped and said, Victor, what did you come over here? Did you come to help me or not? Vic said, I came to supervise. 
He didn't come to participate. He came to supervise the move. I, I had to laugh, you know. He never helped either. He just stood there the whole time in my way. Too many saints come to church not to serve or to be a blessing, but to supervise. The saints at Philippi didn't supervise. They, didn't, they got involved in the work of the ministry. Paul says, from the first day until now, they were a faithful church. They were a dependable people. God could depend on them to show up. God could depend on them to be faithful. Christ could look to them to carry out special assignments and difficult tasks in the kingdom. They were a willing and a ready people. Sounds like a dream church. Sounds like the church any pastor would gladly volunteer to lead. And it is because they've been so faithful, it is because they have been so dependable that the Holy Spirit confirms to Paul in prayer that they will remain so. Look at what he says in verse six. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work among you will complete it by the day of Jesus Christ. I am confident that you're going to last. I am confident that you are going to stand the test of time because you're good people. The saints at Philippi are a good people, located in a very good place, committed to doing good things. And yet Paul insinuates something here. He does it very subtly, but he insinuates something here. He insinuates that the saints of the church of Philippi are not yet complete. They're good but they are not as good as good can get. They're somewhere in between Franco-American spaghetti and mama's homemade spaghetti sauce. They have good values. They have good deeds. They have good spiritual stamina. They can stick it out. They are disciplined, but they are not yet complete. Paul only points this out to them because he loves them so much. Look at what he says in verse 7. It is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. Paul appreciated them. He loved them and he appreciated them because they stood with him in the good days and in the bad. They never abandoned him. The Corinthian church doubted him. The Galatians' support was tepid at best. But the Philippians started out with Paul and they stayed with Paul. And Paul is grateful. Paul is grateful for the consistent and faithful support. I would dare say this was his favorite church. The church at Philippi is a good church, filled with good people, in a very good place, accomplishing a lot of good deeds. They have good attitudes, they have good discipline, and they have, what Paul says here, they have a pretty good future. But the saints at Philippi were more than likely 
pretty good people even before they were converted. That is the problem. This was a high society type of city already. These people were probably pretty disciplined and committed to whatever they did already anyway. <laughs> they were pretty good people even before they met Christ. And that is the problem. This is where we draw the distinction between cultural goodness and true godliness. Between SpaghettiOs and real Italian. You see, cultural goodness looks almost identical in many respects to godliness. There are a lot of good people in America. You can't tell me there isn't. We give more money, we're more generous than any country in the world. There are a lot of good people in America, but good, good is not good enough. Cultural goodness does not steal in the traditional sense of the term. Cultural goodness does not kill. Cultural goodness does not bear false witness against its neighbor. Cultural goodness looks a lot like godliness. But the problem with cultural goodness, the problem with being culturally good, is that cultural goodness is susceptible to change. And as the culture changes, so does the definition of what is considered to be good. Cultural goodness changes with the times. There are a number of mindsets today. There are a number of activities going on even in this country today that are considered to be good that were frowned upon just 15 years ago. There are a number of mindsets and activities today that are considered bad that were praised when I was a child. Culture has shifted. And as the culture changes, so does the concept of what is good. And in many ways, even within today's church, cultural goodness has supplanted godliness. And most saints cannot tell the difference. But God can. The Philippians were civil people because they lived in a civilized society. The saints at Philippi were dedicated because commitment and follow through was considered to be a cultural good. They were able to consistently support Paul because they had the resources. They had good attitudes because they were at the top of the social heap. They had good discipline because the majority of the city was military communities. Of course they had good discipline. They had good discipline before they even met Christ. And what they valued was what the culture around them valued. How does this apply to the church today? Well, on the one side, you have the liberal church. The liberal church espouses contemporary values, whatever they are, whatever the flavor of the day is, the liberal church just follows along. 
Whatever the culture says is good, that's what is good to the liberal church. It is cultural Christianity and not true godliness. But what about the conservative church? The conservative church does the same thing in a different way. Because what the conservative church espouses are the old cultural values. They always want to go back to the good days of yesteryear. They don't realize it. But when they yearn for the old way, they're actually yearning for the old cultural way and not the biblical way. They want to return to the days of never when America was a Christian nation. Because they idolize past culture and not true godliness. When you look back at the world that they're idolizing, you see the sin and the deprivation that they're too blind to see because nostalgia is blinding their eyes. And they think there's something back there that's better than what's going on right here. Solomon says that's foolishness. Solomon says do not say that yesterday was better than today because there is no difference. The same people doing the same things they've always done. The only difference today is they're doing it now more in public than in private. It's the same thing. But both of these churches are not idolizing true godliness. They're idolizing cultural goodness. The culturally good community does not steal. When I say steal, what do you think about when I say steal? What picture comes in your mind? You know what comes in my mind? Some guy in the middle of the night breaking in your car, trying to get your cell phone. When I think about stealing, I think about somebody kicking in your door while you're not home and going in with a flashlight and taking your stuff. That's what the culture says stealing is. But when a billionaire overcharges you and price gouges you and takes your money, we don't call that stealing, we call that good business. Even the church calls it good business because the church is so culturally intertwined. We don't recognize that as stealing. When you charge 300% interest, we don't call that stealing. That's just good business. And if you didn't want to pay 300%, well, you shouldn't take out the loan. God would disagree. God says it's stealing. The church says it's not because the church is more cultural than it is godly. That's why we distinguish between white-collar crimes and all other, what is a white-collar crime? A crime is a crime. No, it's a white-collar crime. And if you get convicted, you go to white-collar jail where you eat Italian cuisine. <laughs> and unbeknown to us, we've been trained to think this way as well. So that when we hear about the corporation that's dumping the, the contaminants into the ocean and the children getting cancer and tumors because some company is dumping all of their trash into the ocean, we don't call that murder. No, that's not murder. That's just business. When you pollute the air and children are coming down with asthma like never been, that's not murder. That's just good business. That is murder. But who, who's to blame for it? Who, who did it? You can't tell, so... That's not actually a crime. Who made those rules? Did God make those? No, the culture made those rules. And the church just lines up behind the culture. 
because we do not have a taste for true godliness. So on the one hand, you got the Christians who want to go and stand outside of the, the plant that's dumping the stuff and they want to protest and we need to get environmental control under, yeah, yeah. They, they want to protest and shut down the company if they can. On the other hand, you got the other group fighting against, don't, don't say gay down in Florida. Everybody's just fighting about, uh, none of it is, is true godliness. It's Franco-American spaghetti values. It's weak sauce. It is. It's weak sauce. It's much to do about nothing. Because you, can't, you can change a culture all you want. If the hearts of the people do not change, God is not pleased. And God is not impressed. The saints at Philippi are good people. But because they're so good, this is interesting, because they're so good, because they do things so well, because they're so capable, because they're so qualified, there is this temptation that they may come to rely more on their own goodness than on the assistance of the Holy Spirit. And this is Paul's concern. This is why he warns them in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. In, in what, let me say this. In what otherwise is such a beautiful letter. When you read the book of Philippians, it's such a beautiful letter. Paul has no real complaints about these people. He is very cordial and polite to these people. He really likes them. It's, a good, it's an enjoyable book to read. And out of nowhere, in the middle of this beautiful book, Paul says this, beware of dogs. Where'd that come from, bro? Beware of evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and take pride in Jesus Christ. We put no confidence in the flesh. That's his concern right there. That if your spiritual taste buds have not been exercised enough, you're going to think that good is evil and that evil is good. Paul wants to train them how to distinguish between what is good, what is better, and what is best. That's what he wants to do. So that they learn to put no confidence in their own flesh, in their own culture, or in anything in this world. So that they will be spiritually acclimated to the finer things of the kingdom of God. This is what Paul is trying to warn them against. Pride. The assumption that they have arrived. So Paul is on his knees here giving his glowing report of the saints at Philippi. And he's prompted by the Holy Spirit to make this specific request, which is also the purpose of his writing the book. He says in verse nine, this is what I pray, that your love may overflow still more and more, catch this, in real knowledge and in all discernment. What did you just say, Paul? Are you saying they don't have real knowledge? I didn't say that. I just said, I pray that your love would overflow still more and more in real substantive knowledge and all discernment. Let's, let's, let's unpack this just a little bit. First, Paul is praying that the saints at Philippi would overflow with love, agape. 
And the most appropriate definition for this context is, is interest or concern or, or to have high regard for something. Paul is praying that their high regard may overflow more and more to higher and to higher degrees. That they might come to appreciate more and more the real knowledge. That they would acquire a true discernment. That they would be able to identify and distinguish the finer things of God. Not just knowledge, but real knowledge, full and complete knowledge. Heart knowledge versus head knowledge. Character knowledge. True knowledge instead of culturally informed knowledge. This I pray, that your high regard for full and complete knowledge would overflow to higher and higher degrees in all matters of discernment. You've mastered the basics already. You're a healthy church, you're a healthy people. And now that you've mastered the mechanics of the faith, you know the mechanics of the faith, church attendance is necessary, check. Paying tithe and offering is good, check. You know sound doctrine when you hear it, check. You know that giving to the church is essential, check. You got the basics down pat, you look real good. You've moved beyond Franco-American SpaghettiOs. Now you're enjoying homemade spaghetti and meat sauce. And I know you think that what you now have is the best of the best. But believe me, Paul is saying, there is still so much more. My prayer is that your interest in the things of God would overflow to higher and higher degrees in real knowledge and all discernment, Paul says, so that you may discover the things that are excellent so that you may discover the finer things. The good that you have mastered is still not good as it gets. The better understanding you have attained to is not the best that God has to offer. Paul prays that the saints at Philippi would be filled with a renewed hunger and thirst after righteousness. Paul prays that they will not come to rest on their laurels and believe themselves to have arrived somewhere. Paul prays that they will not become complacent, satisfied, and rocked into a false sense of spiritual security based upon past successes and past accomplishments. That they will neither be satisfied with who they are now or with who they were before. This is Paul's prayer. They will not become complacent. Because the truth is that spiritual complacency always leads to spiritual catastrophe. There is no such thing as remaining neutral in the kingdom of God. You don't stop walking in the kingdom of God and just stand still and mark time. Either you are moving forward in the things of God or you're going in reverse. You're never standing still. Paul is saying don't become complacent. Don't stop desiring to learn more, to understand more, to see more, to experience more of God. Because when you do that and you become complacent and your doctrine is secure and your theology is rock solid and you know all of the arguments and you think that you have stabilized, that's when the adversary comes. 
Complacency always leads to catastrophe. When you take your eyes off of growing spiritually, that's when you start judging everything going on in the church. When you take your eyes off of your own spiritual growth and development and you become complacent, you get bored. And so you start looking for a battle to fight and you start making up all kinds of reasons and excuses of why you can't remain in partnership with, you're just bored, you're just complacent because you think that you've arrived somewhere. But you have not. There is always so much more to know. <sighs> Saints at Philippi are good people. But if they remain complacent, that spiritual inertia will lead them to backsliding. Unless they accept this challenge that Paul is introducing them to, to the finer things of the spirit, they will no doubt, we will no doubt pine away. If we lose our zest and our zeal, if we lose our curiosity, we will die on the vine. Paul is praying that the saints at Philippi will renew their sense of wonder and curiosity, that they will re-engage in the process of learning and of even relearning things they may think they already know. As we work our way through this book of Philippians, we're going to cover quite a few things, that are finer things that you may already know about. But it's always a good thing to be reminded. Paul's prayer for the church at Philippi and my prayer for us is that the Lord will renew our desire and our willingness to learn of him. That God will enhance our spiritual discernment so that we can differentiate between what is good, what is better, and what is best in the kingdom of our God. And that we will always choose what is best. <laughs> I'm excited to get into this book with you guys over the next couple months to talk about the finer things of the kingdom of God, to give us a roadmap and a blueprint to cause us to reevaluate our own value system, to see if our value system is actually lining up with the kingdom's values. How many of you know that sometimes the things we value are not the things that God values? Sometimes we engage in fights and in warfare where God is not even interested. It's not even on his agenda. Sometimes we begin to hear our own conscience and our own heart and we mistake it for the heart and the conscience of God. I pray for all of us that we will move away. Well, most of us have already moved away from Franco-American type spirituality. Now I pray that we will move away from the homemade spaghetti to go to a fine Italian restaurant so that the Holy Spirit can begin to feed us again and to help us to learn to distinguish the finer things of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. Majestic is your name in all the earth. You're sweeter than the honey in the honeycomb. Your word is true and upright. 
We desire to eat your word more than our necessary food. You have taught us so many things over the years, Father. You have shown us so many good things. You have blessed us. You have developed us. You have led us. We pray today, Father God, that those of us who have become complacent, that you would renew within our bellies, that you would renew within our souls a zeal and a curiosity, a fresh desire, a refined interest in the things of God. You help us to understand the things that are most valuable and most precious to you. You help us to rearrange our own value systems to be in alignment with your will and your desire for them. Only you know what is best. Only you are best. Father, I pray that you would expose us to the finer things of our faith, to reassure us and to give us renewed confidence that we are walking in the way that you have prescribed and that you are pleased with our sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.